Welcome to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Workbee. My name is Tanja Falkner and in this episode we want to share with you an experts panel that we recently had about localization in the life sciences industry. Hi everyone. So thanks for, for joining us. So I see that the list of uh, attendees is growing. So people are starting to join us. So we will probably just wait uh, another minute or so just to make sure people have time to join us. Cool. Yeah, it usually takes a couple of minutes. People are like, um, you know, putting the go to webinars thing on that and stuff. Sounds reasonable. That's fine. Okay. So basically this panel is going to be hosted by Robert and myself, Brahim. We are both from WordBee, WordBee being uh, the maker of the end-to-end -end translation management system and CAT tool. Right. So many life sciences localization providers and companies use WordBee to manage all aspects of localization, back translation, linguistic validation, but we're not going to talk much about that today. But if that's interesting to anybody, you can get in touch. So, okay, we have quite an amount of people who have uh, voted already. So I would just share some figures that are moving. So it's going to be a challenge. So basically about 46% of the attendees have uh, selected the recruitment, which is uh, option uh, number one. And then more than 30% have answered training and terminology. Good for you, Gabrielle. And uh, <laughs> I knew we, it. <laughs> We also have the regulations that have been uh, selected by uh, about 23% of attendees. And finally, processes, 31% uh, approximately, just like training and terminology, pretty much. Okay, so it's not moving anymore, so I guess that most people uh, have voted already. So I will simply close the poll. Thank you for that. Okay. So now that we have uh, our poll ready, and without further ado, I, I think we can uh, go uh, and present our panelists. So we are super excited to welcome uh, our experts today for our panel series. Well, maybe you can take a moment to introduce yourself and share a bit about the perspective you bring. So can, maybe we can start with you, uh, Renate. Okay. So my name is Renate Tainan, and I've been working in life sciences for about 12, almost 13 years now. And I've been a project manager, senior project manager, and now program manager. Um, I'm based out of Switzerland, but I started in the US and also have worked remotely in Spain. So a little bit all over, like, like all our clients, I'm sure. <laughs> so it, was it always like project manager related to life sciences already? Yeah, or? yeah it's all life sciences, yeah. What about you, Gabrielle? I'm Gabrielle, the, the director of TermNet, the International Network for Terminology. And we did a lot of consultancy, large scale projects for life science companies, multinational corporations mostly. And we did a lot of trainings of people, you know, of staff, not necessarily only translation and uh, localization experts and, and technical writers, but also all kinds of uh, stakeholders in that localization project. So hundreds of them actually are certified. We do also qualification and certification in terminology, a terminology driving license, if you wish. So, and there we got a lot of case studies, of course, you know, and a lot of, uh, real life examples what are the challenges okay what about you olga our company was founded by a group of physicians back in 1995 in russia it grew out of the need to produce high quality and up-to-date translations because you know before 1995 the presence of russia on international research scene was less and mm -hmm. so it was in flux of new terminology so we still have been focusing on life sciences mainly on linguistic validation and medical mm -hmm. translations. So your company's name, uh, Preference, Preference Pro? Pro? Yes. Sorry. So if I'm not wrong now, the most of your company members are in the US right now, or is it? We have group of translators who are always local. Okay. And medical professionals. So in every country, we try to build a team of medical professionals and translators, and they all reside in the target countries. But our headquarters are in the US. Okay. David? Hi there, thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation to take part today. I come from a medical communications background, so previously as a, a technical writer, a medical writer, um, working for pharmaceutical companies, and more recently have set up a, a company called Lay Summaries Limited, and uh, that's focusing on 
providing layperson summaries of clinical trial results, which is basically in response to a, a regulation from the, the EU, which I can talk about in a bit more detail. But um, so I suppose I straddle the content and the, the translation to an extent or the localization, as I see the, the terminology that, that, that seems to be used. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Our uh, fifth panelist uh, is uh, Mladen from Cyclopea, so he, he should be joining uh, now in the coming minutes. So I think we can maybe uh, kick things off. Uh, so let's have just an overview of uh, maybe as a first area to cover today of the different types of services in the life sciences and uh, medical field where you, you are maybe active right now. I don't know who wants to kick it off. Maybe Olga. I just want to, to maybe uh, give you some background. So uh, here we have a list of attendees that uh, might be in the business for quite some time. We may have also some language LSPs or uh, MLVs that might uh, simply consider entering the medical field in the coming uh, in the future. So it's just that not everyone will be uh, fully specialized in this domain, but it's good, I think, to, to just have a, an idea of what type of services we might find in the medical industry. So you, you can go ahead. Okay, so we are mostly specialized in linguistic validation. Okay. Linguistic validation is uh, usually refers to quality of life questionnaire and self-assessment questionnaire. Uh, so it's basically intended for patients because uh, patient subjective assessment to their condition becomes more and more important in clinical trials and medical research back, and I'm talking about 40 years back, when you test a new drug, two versions of drug, you compare the physical criteria. And it mostly I'm talking about uh, long-term conditions. Mm -hmm. So now with the choice of therapies, we would like to choose such a therapy, which is also provides for better quality of life. If you need to stay in a hospital, and I'm exaggerating right now, but basically if you need to stay in a hospital all the time to receive a therapy as opposed to being at home, then maybe the one which is maybe slightly less effective but allows you to stay at home is better. So this questionnaire become more and more important and uh, uh, they're vital points of research. So we want to make sure that the translated and validated versions, the great deal of them was developed in the US, is accurate in terms of language, uh, in terms of terminology, and also in terms of culture-specific realities. Okay. So this is going to be your main uh, type of uh, expertise. And besides uh, linguistic validation, is there any other? Uh... Yes, we do medical translations, all kinds of uh, um, clinical trial related documents. We can also help with submissions. We have DTP service, uh, mm -hmm. things like that. And, and more traditional services. Okay. Yes. Uh, what about you, Gabriel? Hmm. Uh, well, as as I said, we, we mainly do consultancy and training. We've seen a lot of uh, case studies where a very small number of language experts is doing language services for huge multinational <laughs> corporations. You know? And what puzzled us and still is, is that the awareness of safety and security, of quality, you know, is extremely high, of course, in, in life sciences and, and medical device manufacturers, for instance. But the awareness of the importance, yeah, if not the critical success factor of language and terminology still is surprisingly low. So this is kind of an interesting issue, and it's so different from automotive industry for instance, yeah, because maybe, yeah, maybe it is because the end clients yeah, are different. Because when you buy a car, the user manual is part of the product and the end user is the driver, the buyer of the car. And you, you couldn't deliver the product, the car, without having the user manual localized, yeah, translated into the, the language of the target markets. Yeah? So maybe this is why the awareness for, for also decent terminology and, and consistent, correct uh, terminology in the source language is so much higher in the automotive industry than in the medical industry. It's, it, they catch up now, yeah? but actually this is uh, uh, quite uh, a paradox, I think, yeah? that, as I said, on the one hand, wow, all these actually over-regulations and standards and, you know, measurements and whatnot, you know, and on the other hand, 
so little awareness of, of language issues and the knowledge that and the understanding that, mm-hmm. that it really it is so crucial, in particular what, what Olga just said, you know, mm-hmm. if there is no understanding of the patient, yeah, that's highly uh, risky, of course. You know? mm-hmm. what, what about you, David? Uh, so, you, so, David, um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I suppose my, yeah, obviously you need to understand the, the perspective of the end user who's going to be kind of consuming your material if you like and and understanding their position and we can get into a bit more of that about you know the science versus the, the layperson terminology but I suppose in terms of the services that I have experience in previously would be um, kind of traditional medical communications in the sense of publications so mm-hmm. the writing up of um, trial results for publication in journals uh, presentations at conferences mm-hmm. So kind of on the publication side and then on the meeting side, things like um, training for medical teams within pharmaceutical companies, uh, running advisory boards with with doctors to get their perspective on the drugs and the, the, the findings and the trial results and such like. But no, I absolutely agree with the points made there about understanding who is going to be um, kind of the main target of your output and tailoring it appropriately to their needs. Uh, Renate? Yeah, the company I work for, we do everything to do with life sciences. So we do, uh, you know, regulatory content, clinical, we do language validation. So we cover the whole, you know, gamut of, of services there. We do interpreting, everything. We, you know, we also cover the side of marketing, you know, for life sciences companies. So basically anything that they need, they they can come to us. and. We provide. <laughs> Renate, uh, just to, it, of course, it's a big industry. So we just want to have an idea of the type of companies or institutions that would uh, request such services. Could you maybe just give us some uh, overview? Yeah, I mean, I prefer not to name names. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but uh, I mean, they're, they're on our website, actually. So I suppose I probably could. But I mean, any large pharma that you can think of, go to your medicine cabinet and grab a uh, you know a package and, and look at who the manufacturer is and, and those are companies that we're very likely working with also medical device you know so you go to a hospital and I can't go to hospitals anymore if I go in and I see you know a certain machine I'm like mm, okay <laughs> I wonder that this person read the manual you know that we translated so um, so you know, is, so it, is it primarily like uh, privately held uh, companies or do you also happen to work with uh, uh, public uh, organizations? Mainly private, but there's also public, yeah. Okay. Kind of... What about the rest of you? And do you also primarily work with uh, privately held companies or do you sometimes do some work for, uh, I don't know, local hospitals or governments? Yeah, I, I think for me, it would be in the same camp as Ronate. And I think it stems from the fact that private companies have the budgets to be, you know, taking on partners and agencies to be doing this type of work, whereas, you know, maybe a university or a, a public um, organisation would keep these things in-house or perhaps uh, just wouldn't have the budgets to be able to outsource these sorts of kind of activities. Okay. David, can you maybe walk us through the content creation side of life sciences? Because I think you have some background there. Yeah, sure. So I suppose the, the, the model that I'm familiar with and, and, and have worked with would be as a, an agency partnering with a client, you know, a, a very kind of standard model. Um, and the client would employ us to develop their materials. And so you would take a brief from them, depending on what the project was, mm-hmm. try to understand what exactly is it that you're looking for in the end. And then I think what's kind of, I don't know if it's unique necessarily about the pharmaceutical industry, but because it's in such a regulated environment, things are very controlled and processes are very controlled. And I mean, you, you on developing your content, it would go through five to ten other people's hands on the client side before it ever saw the light of day you know it'd be, re- it'd be heavily reviewed and scrutinized it wouldn't just be kind of one or two people would look at it and say that's fine it would mm-hmm. it would go through a number of different steps and then you know the legal team would have to sign off as well and, and that has its own kind of interesting nuances as well so 
Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, my experience as the writer would be developing that content, uh, liaising with the client, and also sometimes, because there's an interesting kind of triangle in that, you would have the client, the agency, and we also work with doctors as well. So it's not just a two-way thing, it would be a three-way thing. And there's kind of interesting relationships there as well about you managing that process and, and managing those expectations uh, and making sure you get the right sign-offs at the right point and, and all that, that sort of thing. And, and David, do you have a language process, a terminology process also? How do yeah. you handle language in this automated way even? Yeah, yeah, sure. So most pharmaceutical companies, particularly who have an established drug, or at least a drug that's approval and going to launch, should have some sort of agreed scientific lexicon. So they'll have a way a set language that they will use to describe the mm -hmm. disease state, to describe yeah. the yeah. mechanism of action of the drug, to describe how the trial setup has been done, to describe the endpoints and the outcome measures, to describe the adverse events, everything around that that they want to communicate, they, they will have a, a kind of agreed lexicon to follow. And so, and, and one of that, I suppose, is it's branding, isn't it? That they want a certain, you know, if someone reads something, they'll know that's by this XYZ company, or if they read something else, they say, well, that's how this company describes it. And it, it provides ingrained patterns into the consumer, if you like. Um, but that then brings up interesting questions when you then talk about the lay summary side of things. So how do we describe these concepts in terms to people who aren't familiar with them? So you know, to you and I, or maybe not, I don't know, an adverse event, we would know what that is. But to the man on the street, they have no idea what an adverse event is. Or or even, you know, placebo, we know what placebo is, a, you know, a phase three trial. Any of these things that come as second nature to someone in the industry that, that has a lot of kind of connotation and immediate, you know, connections with it would mean nothing to someone. So, and I think, you know, that this kind of lay language stuff is still quite early days. And I think there will be a lot of sort of feeling out how to, to, to deal with these challenges of the agreed scientific lexicon versus lay language and, and how clients, how comfortable they are with using kind of different terminology to describe their drugs. In fact, so, that relates to a question we just got from uh, one of our attendees, which is uh, at what point does terminology enter the medical content writing process? So maybe you want to comment on that, uh, Gabrielle? Well, usually, you know, if the awareness is already high, people ask mm -hmm. us how to provide uh, standardized language. You know, all these lexica, snowmade, and, and all the standardized terminology is out there, of course, but the field is so huge. You cannot expect that you have a, uh, an agreed standardized terminology, accepted terminology for every field of your activities. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So there is still a, a lack. And of course, a large company yeah, with all these stakeholders, yeah, from technical writer, content producers, product managers, uh, all the way down to the translators, to the after sales, for instance, people, yeah, they have to agree on a common joint corporate terminology. And so the, actually, it should start at the very first stage. Yeah, and, and when the content is created, but there it's it's very transversal, it's very interdisciplinary, if you wish. In, in uh, various people, as David pointed out earlier, various people are always involved. Yeah, these are the core stakeholders from the very beginning, and that's why we need a process to standardize the mechanisms. You know, mm -hmm. how to agree, mm -hmm. how to come up with the need for a new term or to amend, correct, or even delete yeah, obsolete terms, yeah, how to define new concepts. Yeah, and this needs to be standardized in such a way that uh, these core people know which steps they have to follow. And it's not only you know, about these prescriptive tools. We always ask before, uh, how, but what tools? Of course, there are authoring tools. That's not the problem. But we try to really make people understand that first, it's about the people. You need to get the buy-in of those people really concerned with creating terminology, processing it, uh, handling it, mm -hmm. managing it, all the way down to the end uh, user. And then actually comes the processes. And when you 
manage to integrate language and terminology processes in the existing landscape of processes and we are in the business very in, in the subject very uh, you know overregulated actually they have tons of processes so as a new standalone process of how to handle language and terminology this is not a good option it, mm -hmm. we need to integrate you know in other quality related processes we need to integrate these language processes and terminology processes then actually it's really smooth then so renette at rws how do you manage terminology and and how does how you do terminology connect with how your clients do terminology or content creators um, mm -hmm. like david for my group we do uh, basically there's there's several ways but it depends also on the maturity level of the the client that we're working with because some of them actually have terminology departments which is very exciting when i see yeah. that Lucky you, lucky you. Then no, your work is way easier. Yeah, it? it is. It, it is. It is. And and you know then that the results they're gonna be happier with the results as long as you're using the you know what they're giving yeah. you. To, you know, but it's also kind of vaguely uh, Orwellian, you know, like <laughs> the, yeah. the Ministry of Terminology or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean. Otherwise, we do create our own glossaries, you know, that we share with our teams. You know, we do use core teams for a lot of the clients that we work with. So we, we are kind of narrow the pool in a sense of people that we use for the ones that we need to. And, you know, constant updating. There's with some clients who have agreements, you know, of when do they want to sort of revise the terminology that we're maintaining for them. So we have processes again to make sure that we are hitting those milestones, you know, that we've set to hit. And there are other clients where they don't want to get involved at all. You know, they just kind of, you deal with it. Here's the mm -hmm. translation, you know, throw it over the fence and I just want it back when you're done, you know. So there's all kinds of involvement or non-involvement there. So, you know, at the mm -hmm. same time, we're, we're in, the, in the business of providing quality. So all our, our linguists know how to use terminology bases and, you know, we, we provide training when needed and, you know, we make sure that we are hitting those quality benchmarks that we've set for ourselves. Yeah. And as it was said before, so basically we understand that people are at the center of uh, everything and we hear that they, th there seems to be a variety of uh, stakeholders which is uh, pretty so diverse compared to more traditional translation and localization services so could you maybe give us an idea of uh, the type of stakeholders you work with and uh, how do you manage to have them all work together in fact so may maybe Olga can you comment on that basically we approach each project individually, we assess geographic location and okay. based on what resources are available in this country for medical or life science translations. In some countries, there is a vast number of resources. So mm -hmm. a translator with doing due diligent research can actually come up with a good translations. And then, of course, we have reviews and quality. But in some countries where these resources are not readily available, we create a team of subject matter experts that check literally every single line. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it's impossible. Medical dictionaries may be out of date, and online resources are misleading, to say this least. So are you referring to people that have uh, both expertise in, in the medical field and linguistic background, or do they have to have both, or can it be no, just... No, we have to have two. One with a strong linguistic background, a professional translator with experience in life sciences, mm -hmm. and another just sometimes a doctor. So the doctor reviews the terminology, goes back to the translator, and step-by-step -step glossary terminology content is established. Okay. But unfortunately, in some countries, and including Russia, you would think that by now they should have sufficient resources, but they don't. They don't have a specialization at um, universities such as medical translators, just general translations. Mm -hmm. So taking it all together, they really need a huge input from the doctors, okay. mm -hmm. including just sometimes consultations as an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. So we could solve it in the beginning and have a good stepping stone follow the rest of the process, which is standard, you know, 
language quality inspections, reviews, assessments that you can manage according to the budget timeline and the needs. But the key is to get a good start. Mm, okay. You can't, we don't rely on review at the later stages or creating a glossary at the later stages because mm -hmm. uh, although uh, the input from medical, it's an investment, but it uh, provides a better quality, a good quality, okay. and uh, mm. it pays back. I mean. Are you ISO certified, Olga, if I may ask you, ISO so 17100? Are you ISO 17100 certified? We are not yet, but we are not yet. But our translators now basically they pass the yeah. uh, requirements. Yeah. So for all our because clients, we are ready least, to. Yeah, mm -hmm. at least this definitely raises the overall quality and the processes because this this process of revision, the the four eyes principle, and then also yes. review, it's quite uh, prescribed in in that standard. So it, it helps yes, a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And what about you, Rene? Yes, is no, your company definitely ISO certified? We have three ISO certifications, so yeah, we get audited regularly. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, Usually clients are very picky in, in life yeah. sciences, but as you said earlier, there is still, and an, what Bozai was referring to, there is still this attitude of, as you described it so, mm -hmm. so nicely, yeah? so uh, here is the text, go away translate it bring it back and we do not care and this is still i think a huge challenge and the risk because if this is the attitude yeah of life science companies then uh it's very hard because you are never the only lsp language service provider yeah, yeah. yeah? i met companies they had dozens they had more than 20 language service providers and my job <laughs> has been to really to clarify what is the quality of their work and how many do we need and so on and so forth and of course the first step was always that i really recommend iso 17100 certification mm -hmm. and of course also the the terminology literacy and, and terminology certificates uh, etc and actually having i always recommend that they shall build that these large corporations that they shall build their own language and uh, terminology teams yeah? of course they end up then with the uh, three people yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> responsible for uh, 30,000 employees and, and you know but at mm. least this is a beginning and as we said earlier at least it makes your life then very much easier if you have this group of language experts within the company and then then you really can make sure that there is not this you know a horrible mess we we end up when we have so many language service providers not knowing of course from each other and, and in many cases also the various stakeholders the departments they do not know about each other's activities and they do not uh, have you know a, a common uh, term base or, or not even a glossary yeah for their own brand names so this is actually what we're talking about yeah? uh, of course there is yeah. you, you have more advanced companies you have less advanced but uh, yeah. uh, in principle there is still something I'm really surprised and and puzzled of, of what's going on in, in quite large corporations, you know, well, and I, even I also, think, uh, also in the, in the non-profit world. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that the, these large uh, yeah. networks, uh, yeah, are, but they they struggle more with the multilingualism, of course, and so their awareness is way higher. If you're an international mm -hmm. non-profit organization in these fields, you you're quite aware mm -hmm. of, of language issues. Well, I, you know, and I, I think it's what Olga said was really interesting, too, about how providing these services in different countries, depending on the resources that are available there, it affects how you provide the service and exactly. what services that exactly. you can provide. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not sure that this is exactly the right audience for the question, but has anyone ever been involved with deciding in which countries to launch a new product or, for example, launching a new life sciences product or helping a client do it? in a country where they've never done anything before and they're just starting from zero? I've helped clients do this, but I don't know if they had no absolute zero contact in the country before, you know, but I, but mm -hmm. I have had clients launch products into a new market, you know, where they, and for example, we do a lot of in-country review, you know, for, for clients. So they didn't have somebody in the country, for example, that mm -hmm. could help them with the, with reviewing their own products. So then we help them mm -hmm. through a process that would that would help allow them to have some sort of a review so that they could mm -hmm. launch the product 
meeting their own regulations again and their own processes that they have to have something reviewed before and signed mm -hmm. off before they can go ahead and launch you know so right. it takes you know so, a little a lot of planning and and it takes a little longer to run the project as you can imagine but right. but it gets done i mean new new countries are added uh, not all the time but they are added um. hey as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics. And it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordbee Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. So let's get a little bit specific here, because we, we have a question over here from Max Deckers. He says, why is the approach unique for life sciences? Much of what is being said could be true for other domains as well. Yeah. And I think that's because we haven't gotten very specific <laughs> about processes yet. So before we get into recruitment and training, which is the biggest problem that everyone has, and we have to talk about that too, let's skip to processes then. And let's go on to the localization side here. So let's talk about things like parallel translation, back translation. Let's let's explain like some of these heavy and unique processes um, for localization. And anyone who wants to jump on that, I, I guess either Olga or or Renette probably. I think I think language validation is one of the most complicated, at least that I know. So maybe let Olga talk about. Okay, all right, basically. Uh... So as I said before, we need to make sure that uh, the produced translation is uh, linguistically and culturally equivalent to the original. So it should be the same tone, the same register. It should, uh, if uh, it should be written in a fairly simple language most of the time, as it is intended for patients. So to do so, we produce two forward translations done by two independent translators, and then the person who supervises locally the entire project, let's call this person language lead or language coordinator, language lead. Uh, he or she creates a single translations based on the two translations. The idea is to minimize the possibility of an accidental mistake and also, you know, just to benefit from input from several individuals. But then the produced translation has been translated by a native English speaker or depends which language, let's English speaker, just to facilitate the discussion. And then the lead linguist compares item by item, including headers and footers, the original and the back translation, and explains all the discrepancies. The goal is twofold. First of all, to analyze the text and to allow parties who don't speak the target language to participate in the discussion. For example, it could be the author of the questionnaire who would like to know what's going on with his instrument. And also it's to document every decision made. So part of it, it's more creative and uh, based on linguistic analysis, but we also need to document every decision made. Then uh, usually it is being sent to clinicians specialized in the area of interest. The clinicians supposed to check uh, professional terminology, and also if the language used in a questionnaire is consistent with that used in doctor-patient communications. Sometimes the translation is correct, but it's not how the doctors would normally ask their patients this same question. 
Do you feel tired in the morning? Do you feel weak in the morning? It's subtle differences, but the patients need to hear something familiar. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the instrument is being presented to five, usually five or 10 individuals from the target group. And the content is being discussed item by item. Basically, we ask to explain what each item means in their own world. And then uh, just regular proofreading, usually double proofreading, two rounds, and uh, language sign of final check of the formatted file. So in brief, this is it. It's a big process. Yeah. Yes. Would you add uh, anything, Renette? Yeah, I just think that's uh, for other translations that, that I've worked on in other industries, it's, it's not that quality is not important, because it is important but it's so crucial in life sciences. I mean, if you if you get a comma wrong, you know, it could almost kill somebody or maybe it could, I don't know, you know. So it's very, very uh, important, you know, to have, there's a lot of risk basically involved in the translations. So you have to have a lot of steps throughout the process to control, you know, that everything is, you know, within a controlled environment, you know, that it that it's working and that it's going to be fine at the end. And there's a lot of people, as you can imagine, that touch that text throughout when we get it, you know, to, to start the translation until we deliver. I mean, you have, it goes through, you know, DTP, through proofers, through linguists that are translating, it's going through Trados, it's going, you know, to, to, to other tools, you know, it's, it's going through all kinds of tools, so anything could get dropped you know, logos get dropped, commas get dropped, you know, there, there's characters that get corrupted and then you can't read the text. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of, uh, you know, exaggerating, but, you know, there could be one word in there that suddenly you can't read and it's a crucial word in the sentence. So you have to have all these quality steps to catch, you know, catch anything that goes away from what the uh, intended result is, you know. So I think that's what I find is is very different, you know, from other other industries that I've worked with, you know. And there were real-life cases when the date of the clinical studies had to be thrown away because of the yeah. mistake. You mistake uh, in a protocol. Mm -hmm. It did happen. It's not just potential, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, from my helicopter view, let's say, I also audited uh, many, many translation companies all over the world with, I'm an ISO 17100 auditor. Okay. So I can tell you that actually there is not so much specifics in the life sciences mm -hmm. as life science itself always claims and really want to hear. My clients, they, they just want to benchmark uh, with other life sciences companies. And I'm, I'm careful yeah, with uh, stating that, but look, this is very, this is a very common <laughs> trait in, in many other uh, industries where safety and security matters, such as aviation, you know, such yeah. as software engineering. If you have clients that are so picky that uh, with these commas, yeah, that reminded me to audits where, wow, these companies, these language service providers, they really, they overdid the, the ISO 17100. The requirements were quite, you know, low in that standard compared to the requirements of their picky clients. And, and that's the same for some life sciences companies. But actually, you know, if you think about automotive, aviation, all these other highly safety and security focused industries, you always have to make sure that the amount of mistakes is very, very low. And you have to check, you have to uh, audit, you have to, you know, double check with, with all the relevant stakeholders involved. This is, uh, if, if I allow to say so, it's, it's pretty common in a lot of other industries. The only thing, and I, I was thinking while you were uh, uh, sharing these great examples with us, the only specifics I encountered, you know, uh, was actually medical interpreting. <laughs> the, because it was not only in, it was real life and sometimes in really very dangerous, you know, life-threatening environments. And this was really a, a huge challenge 
psychological challenge for those great interpreters. You know, I met interpreters uh, after the earthquake in Christchurch in New Zealand uh, a couple of years ago, and and we were discussing what what is really so you know important to have as an uh, ability and knowledge and skills and competences when you doing medical interpretation in such an environment. And and I think this is then very specific because there you need specific training, you need uh, psychological, you know, uh, training and, and you have to have some... So, and there is even a, a great ISO standard we have uh, about so-called community interpretation. It's, it's not only focused on medical, but with some focus they have on, on medical interpretation. You know? uh, this I would is like maybe to... really different, <laughs> but otherwise we, we share these traits with a lot of other industries where safety and security is a real issue. Just to jump in, Brahim, for a second, I, I wonder, um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, whether another point of differentiation might be an image, uh, some around image and reputation, given that certainly pharmaceutical companies are rightly or wrongly have perhaps been a negative image around them because of past practices and they're on, there's a massive kind of cleanup operation I don't think it's the right term but certainly a, mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to display a, a cleaner image and I wonder if that might might have something certainly a point of differentiation and I wonder also you mentioned automotives earlier on that might be coming their way as well based on recent events uh, with <laughs> German car manufacturers yeah. but and that's perhaps another point of differentiation there as well. But your point, your point's really valid about the. My mind jumped to the aviation industry as well, and you know, mm-hmm. aspects around safety and the importance of accuracy, um, you know, you know, uh, in that regard. I just wanted to take a, a short moment just to introduce uh, Madden, who has been uh, able to join a few minutes ago. I know he was waiting uh, for me to introduce him. Hello. So, Mladen, could could you maybe uh, briefly present yourself, explaining a bit uh, of your background and uh, what your organization do? Mm-hmm. Actually, here I'm representing Cyclopia. We are a company which is uh, present at the market for 15 years. Uh, I co-founded company together with my partner Sandra, and we started as a usual as a as a average translation company. Uh, at the beginning, we do many things, uh, but. Uh, through the, through the time, as a company developed, uh, we specialized in certain verticals. And especially during the couple of la- last years, we specialized uh, in life science uh, technology, mainly life science and technology sec- verticals and sectors. So that's our approach. And also, our another specialization is also regional coverage and uh, because... From the beginning, we are, we started from Croatia and uh, then expanded our services to through the whole region, mm-hmm. and um, that's why we we like to to present ourselves as a specialists for um, certain verticals and certain languages. That's what we do. Okay, so as we as we move forward, so we are receiving questions from attendees. We we received for Renate specifically, specifically, uh, which is uh, what quality models or profiles are most frequently used for measuring the linguistic quality in life sciences? We used to use the LISA model, which <laughs> may precede a lot of people's uh, you know, uh, attending, I don't know. But, but the ones that we use are kind of based out of that, and we've developed our own, basically. We have, um, but we test our, our linguists on a regular basis, and we, we go through different, we have different points, basically, where, where we test linguists, and then we, we qualify them based on scores, you know, so there's a certain score that they have to meet. And, you know, we go through, there's a, if you find something, you know, if you're the editor kind of going through the quality and and finding something, then you qualify it as an omission, you know, and and add a a critical value to it, etc. You know, so there's all kinds of scoring going on. Um, We also use our own project managers, who, who qualify the services, uh, for example, of the linguists, you know, so if you're getting things late or you ask for, you know, five files on a TM and you only get four files and no TM, then, you know, you give this vendor a score, etc. So, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know if it, 
maybe the question is not specific enough. I don't know, you know, if that answers the question really. <laughs> So basically, since we were talking about this uh, unique approach in comparison with uh, some other fields in the localization industry, so could you maybe uh, elaborate a bit on the, the typical challenges related to recruitment for life sciences and the medical mm -hmm. industry? Mm -hmm. So it goes, I guess, from the, the actual recruitment to, of people, but also maybe through training and how do you keep people up to date with uh, all the information they have to have about a certain project? Yeah, well, for projects, it's easy because it's a per project basis, right? So we always send instructions and, you know, whatever they else they need, glossaries, reference material, et cetera, et cetera, with each project. So it's on okay. a per project basis. Okay. But kind of zooming out of that. So, I mean, recruiting, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a challenge for us, actually. I mean, it is or a large is, organization. How, how different is that, maybe? Mm -hmm. The recruitment, I mean, we do test translations, which is not new either for, for other okay. industries, but we do have a very low pass rate, you know, so the tests are pretty rigorous. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to meet a certain criteria before you even get sent a test, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what's challenging, actually, that I would say from my point of view, uh, as having run projects and, and you know, having a, a team of project managers that run projects right now, our main challenge with linguists, really, is that not only do they have to have this very specialized knowledge, they need to know how to use tools. And surprisingly, surprisingly, a lot of them just want to translate. And, you know, we are moving very, very far away from there now. And it's getting more and more complex. I mean, even the way, you know, the, the projects that we have to handle, they're becoming more and more technical, you know, with all these CMSs, et cetera, and all these tools. And, you know, it's surprising sometimes to me that, that that linguists are really struggling. And at the same time, it's not because you think, wow, they need to know all this stuff about, you know, medical, pharma, blah, blah, all this terminology. <laughs> then I'm, you know, we're asking them to like figure out how to work with all these different tools to, you know, to deal with all these different tags that look different in this tool than in the other. You know, then they need to deliver something completely different each time. You know, it, it's just, it's very challenging, actually, you know, I think, yeah. for them. And then it's for us, too, because then we realize, oh, maybe we should have, you know, trained them on this particular, you know, because we're used to seeing how things change on a regular basis, but they're not necessarily, even though they're, I would say, an integral part of what we do every day, we, we need these linguists, we need the translators that are part of our team, they're more removed in a sense, you know, and sometimes you have to remind everybody to like, no, you have to bring them in and make sure that they're, you know, also on the same page kind of as what you're, you are asking of them and what our clients are asking of mm -hmm. us, you know. I don't know, I find that that's really the challenge is not really so much recruiting, you know, maybe my vendor relations team would scream, <laughs> you know, right now. <laughs> But, you know, I think really it's, and also maintaining, you know, the linguists interested in working in these projects are becoming more and more technical as well, you know, as far as fiddling around with stuff more than tran actually translating, you know. And then if we get into MT, that's a whole, <laughs> a, whole other, a whole other webinar. <laughs> Uh, well, how about you, Olga? But also, we we got to hear from David on this too. I so, would agree uh, with Lynette. Recruitment is not. I mean, recruitment is part of life. We all have to recruit, and uh, we want to get the best translators, and we do the test translations and all. But I agree about the technical part of it, especially <laughs> considering that I understand the translator standpoint because every client now or theirs requires new set of skills, and you have to learn it yourself. No matter how many times you watch the demonstration, you have to try it to learn to use the tool. You can't remember, you know. Uh, so it's a little bit, but I think people are getting used to it, actually. I think it's getting better. Because I remember even about five years ago, there were translators who just did not want to use certain tools or learn new tools, and it would stay so openly. But now I think everyone is coming to realization that it's a future and a present, actually. So it is what it is. So I no longer hear as many complaints as before. 
<laughs> now the next challenge will be the post-editing of machine translation out I know, I know, I know. Artificial intelligence coming in. Ooh. <laughs> and there is, again, there is a, a brand new ISO standard about um, post-editing. And, and from that, interesting enough, you know, uh, we have uh, clients from the U.S. only. So far, I think only from the U.S. who got certified. Yeah, against this new standard and they reported that really which is an indicator i think that this is really the future you know <laughs> and uh, or at least great trend real trend but they reported that they you know had uh, so many troubles to find translators who were willing mm. to do this post editing so the reputation of post editing is so low you know but funny enough actually that when they then did it yeah and uh, got the benefits out of it they quite changed also their, their attitude of course and then recommended it <laughs> forward that it's it's not such a nightmare as they expected it to be but uh, yeah seriously mm. i think that uh, the sheer amount of texts you know uh, we face in all kinds of industry but the, of course also in, in life sciences will just uh, force us to uh, to think about alternatives to um, mm -hmm. to human translation and, and as long as, as humans are the past editors i would say we should be on the safe side and we should you know and with all these tools you know we should benefit from the further development and the improvement mm -hmm. of of these tools because otherwise we will end up uh, well, we get stuck, actually. We risk to get stuck in delays and all these very costly processes, you know, you, you all know, you know. And uh, time is still very, very important. And it's, it's very mm -hmm. important to re react, you know, if you think about all these, you know, issues we have when we launch a product in life sciences and medical fields, you know, you, you need to react very fast then, you know. So uh, I think this will surely be one option for the future that we actually have more post editors than, <laughs> and revisers and all kinds mm -hmm. of, of, of new types of or new job profile of, of, of translators. And the, the younger generation, I think, is, is ready for, for that development. So, David, on the content creation side, so so you've got lay summaries, right? And yep. um, and you're you're starting lay summaries. How how long ago did you start lay summaries? So it's June in 2017. Yeah, it wasn't it, not too long ago. So it's mm -hmm. it's quite and and uh, that's in response to a a change in regulation at the EU level, which is going to hopefully hit at the end of this year, and um, which will make these these uh, lay summaries mandatory in whatever a trial's been run in a, a an EU state. So they're going to require translations as well because the source document will probably be English and it will be taken from, it will essentially be a lay translation from the kind of technical trial summary. And then from there, it will be translated into the language of each trial site in the mm. European states. So yeah, we'll have all these fun and games to, to look forward to, I think, in, in due course. So how about recruitment then? So you're, you know, you're starting this new enterprise you have a super cool idea and a super cool niche. Um, yeah. So how is recruitment going for you? For, you know, because a lot of the other panelists have, you know, established companies. So how is it for you? Yeah, I mean, for, more from past experience than now, I think with the kind of technical medical writers, I think there's a bit of a merry-go-round. So the same people go around the same companies, I think. And uh, <laughs> I think they're, they're kind of trying to, I think finding writers is easy enough. I think finding good writers is, is difficult. Uh, and so I've, I've seen a trend now for companies kind of setting up these academies whereby they, they, they target the universities and they try and get the graduates straight from the university into a kind of training program. So it's becoming more professionalized in that sense, which I think is good. And there's some some good practice going on there with regards to recru recruiting a specialist lay summary writers. <laughs> I think that's a different a different ballpark altogether. So you know, I've I've been <laughs> I've been on the lookout for a while now for people with those specific skills because I think there's maybe a conception that uh, it's just a case of dumbing down the scientific content, but it's actually not. It's it, it, it's quite a nuanced process. That's that's that takes a, a kind of honed skill set and there are actually very few people out there who have experience in doing it. I think the most kind of relevant skill set that's probably out there is people who have worked on patient information sheets and consent forms for 
trials um, and I think that's a kind of closest parallel to to what we're doing but watch this space uh, I'll come back to you maybe in eight years time <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll update you on my answer well so if there's any uh, attendees who are thinking wow I could be the one um, that has <laughs> get, get, in touch. <laughs> get in touch with David thank you yeah I'd be keen to know, I wonder, a question for these guys with uh, translation experience in for English. So obviously with lay summaries, one of the key things is to get the language to a level that's understandable to the, the person on the street. And one of the things there is to get it to a kind of a grade level or a certain readability level mm -hmm. um, for which there is the, I think it's a flesh Kincaid readability scale for English. I just wondered what are the similar tools for different languages that you can use for readability and are there uh, do all languages have these or are they modified versions or are they some languages don't have them you know what's the the status some languages certainly don't not all languages do okay. uh, so that's why we go to patients and show them mm -hmm. the material because sometimes it's uh, clear that it's a technical term that is not likely to be understood, but also for patients who experience this condition, sometimes they know more than you think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah. making it too simple and using something weird you made up instead of using a standard familiar term also is not a good solution. Yeah. You sure. really need this feedback for many languages we work with. Yeah. yeah. It's a social linguistic process. And we have a vast experience with uh, really translating, also monolingual <laughs> translation, yeah, this, in this social cultural respect, that uh, it, we call it accessible language, you know, and it works well if you start with the term, with the concept, actually, you know, if, when you start with the concept and then explain the concept, explain the term, what it means then, yeah, and then try to use simple language, try to use accessible, tr uh, explain the scientific term. I think I, I fully agree with Olga. It doesn't make any sense to just skip the technical term, you know, because then it, it really, it, it's too simplified. It may lead to misunderstandings and, and uh, dangerous situations, you know, but to really explain in simple, short, precise sentences with the, with ge in general daily language, uh, what this actually means. And it's uh, fantastic, actually. We, I, I was uh, privileged to work with the South African government 15 years ago, there was that great policy that everything, each and every part of society, including life sciences, uh, concepts and terms, uh, shall be developed, not borrowed from English or Afrikaans, uh, but developed in these uh, former discriminated uh, indigenous African languages which was a huge challenge, but which was also great, you know, because people were so enthusiastic and, and we were privileged to support these terminology groups and the creativity was amazing, you know, how you can really build, even in a very discriminated language, which was actually in, in that stage of a rural, they, they could uh, express uh, rural uh, phenomena. And, and we then, with the existing skills and, and what we had, you know, in, in the language, we, you know, developed these new terms. And, and it's amazing how far we went. You know, it, it refers a little bit to the question before, when, you, when you're completely new in the market with the, with a very, you know, different level of, of, of language yeah, you, you have. And this was amazing, you know, how, how far you can go, how... Uh, clear you can explain very sophisticated modern terms yeah, when you just focus on the concept and try to find an equivalent of the concept in that language you have you know in, in the general language or a language on the, on the rural uh, level and so it's doable of course it it needs a lot of efforts and enthusiasm but it is doable and it's the only way we found out to get the buy-in from uh, from the users of course and the clients because mm. they want to see all the documents translated in their own language. So I think this is a success factor to be able to really translate things also from different stages of developed languages. 
So uh, yeah, so indeed we we are running a bit out of time. So we just realized that there are plenty of other subjects that we would have uh, liked to cover. So for sure there is room for maybe organizing a follow-up webinar uh, on the subject to to dig a little bit about regulations and certifications and also re reporting. So uh, I don't know if you want to shoot out some final question, maybe Robert. Maybe next time in a different panel, we could go more into the processes and stuff. Like, for example, testing translators that Renee was talking about or some of the processes that Olga was talking about with the huge multi-step process mm -hmm. that we follow. So, <laughs> what, I, what I actually wanted to say that uh, when it comes to life science and uh, recruiting and all these processes, I agree with, uh, with Gabriele. It's not, I think that Gabriele mentioned that it's not all about recruiting. It's about education, continuous education of translators. It's, it's a continuous job of project managers working on their competencies to be able to handle different client requirements, to be able to work with the technologists which, is, which are constantly evolving. That's what we see on our side in our daily, daily operations, in our daily business. Thank you, Mbada. Okay, so we would like then to to thank you. So hopefully then uh, we will organize uh, sometime uh, soon some follow up session just to continue our conversation and uh, all of the topics we didn't have time to to cover unfortunately. And uh, we'd like to thank you a lot for uh, taking the time to participate and to respond to some of the attendees' questions. So thank you also for all of the attendees who participated. So. We are sorry that we didn't have time uh, either to, to cover all of the questions, but we'll, we'll try to redirect them to our panelists sure. sometime soon. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Thank what a great pleasure. Thank, Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode about the unique approach of life sciences in the localization industry. And if you'd like to attend future panel discussions live next time, you can register on our website, wordbee.com.